Welcome to Deepen with Pastor Joby Martin. The Church of 1122 is a movement for all people to discover and deepen a relationship with Jesus Christ. And we're praying this message helps you deepen your relationship with Him. Now let's dive in. Well, welcome back. Week two of the Deepen podcast. We talked about the resurrection last week. We started with the miracles, miracle of miracles. And um, so now we're going to go back to the beginning to the first of Jesus's miracles, water to wine. Um, we're going to talk about weddings a lot today because that's the scene of the miracle. And so I thought I'd start with something a little fun. Mm. We all have incredible spouses, so we can have fun for a second on their behalf. Um, I would love for us to reflect on our weddings and what were like a couple things or one thing that went wrong at your wedding. I'll start while you think about it. <laughs> At our wedding, we had um, like a pizza truck cater and they had salads and the Caesar salad had cashews in it, but they didn't label it on the on the um, little nameplate. And so at one moment I saw ambulance lights outside of the venue oh, no. and I asked my mom, and nobody wants to upset you on your wedding day. They think like they can just hide everything. So I'm like, mom, why is there an ambulance here? She's like, oh no, everything's fine. I'm like, no, but why, just tell me why the ambulance is here. She's like, oh, well, your friend Elena from high school, she had a bit of an allergic reaction. Her throat swelled up. So she went outside <laughs> to tell the bellman and they had to call 911. I'm like, an allergic reaction from what? She's like, I think there was cashews in something. It was like 10 minutes later. I'm on the dance floor. I'm dancing. Again, nobody wants to upset you. One of my friends from college, she dances up to me. And she's like, hey, girl, you having fun? I'm like, yeah, great. And she's like, Ryan had a bit of an allergic reaction. We have to go. I look up at her boyfriend. He can't speak. He's taken so much Benadryl. He looks terrible. But, you know, they're trying to, like, be so fun. I'm like, okay, yeah, you should leave. So, yeah, we had a bunch of allergic reactions at our wedding. Okay, who else wants to go? Um, Christy and I married, I don't know, I think it was four or five o'clock in the afternoon, but it was in, in the summer, July, and uh, it tends to rain a lot in Florida. And so we're coming out, all the, me and all my groomsmen are coming out, and it is raining like a cow peeing on a flat rock. <laughs> it is raining so hard. I mean, it's inches in like 10 minutes. And so in order to get into the church, I got to walk through three or four inches of water. Which is oh no problem. I got my mind on other things, no whatever. So we go through the whole ceremony, and uh, but walking down the aisle with my bride, you know, it's just this. All you hear is squish, squish, squish. My favorite story, though, is you 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 talked about it as well. Is my buddy Hank? Oh yeah, this is a great and story. Hank is Hank is uh, one of my dearest brothers. He, I mean, he's one of the closest people to my heart. And this story will be in the next book. All right. Let's awesome. To it. Let's, let's, let's put it in there. Uh, we'll let Hank read the prayer on that chapter. But <laughs> Hank was a little nervous. We'd started praying for sweet Laura years prior and he finally met just Laura, who's awesome. And so they, they're getting married and he'd asked me to, I'm his best man. So he'd asked me to come pick him up. And uh, so I do. And, and when I, when I get to his place, Hank is 45 minutes from needing to be at the church, hadn't packed a thing. So anyway, we kind of worked through that. I got him packed and finally got him all dressed in his tux and get him to church. And it's great. Beautiful. Laura looks beautiful. Everybody, it's just this, it's this really sweet day. It's really sweet for me because I've kind of seen our prayers come to, we started praying for her 25 years earlier. But Hank's a little nervous and he's drinking like a big gulp of coffee. And we're down, it's in a, in a real it's an old church in downtown Jacksonville. And we're down underneath in the basement waiting for him to call us. And we're, 
less than 60 seconds to go time. And Hank is trying to get this thing of coffee down and he has a little bit of shake. <laughs> so he's, and I'm like, pal, you okay? And he goes to take a sip and, and dumps a big gulp down his chest. I mean, Laura looks fantastic. <laughs> Hank looks like an oil stain on the highway. <laughs> and um, I mean, what, literally, we're like at 30, 40 seconds. And all, all I just, I just started undressing. And we're about the same size. So I'm like, Hank, take it off. So um, we, we undress right there. And, and I give him my beautiful white pressed clean shirt. He puts it on. I take his oil stain shirt and try and I'm trying to like get my jacket to kind of cover it up so we walk down the aisle and you know he gets married and everything's great we turn around and they the first picture they take there's Hank and Laura and she's in beautiful white and he's in beautiful white and there's me and I look like an oil stain and it, so that's it. now that's when we amazing. look at pictures that I'm everyone's like look at that loser still, groomsman totally, who couldn't yeah. hold his coffee right but that's amazing you taught on this yeah, and how it's the picture of the, and really? I didn't like bring this up sure. to whatever, but it is a beautiful picture of the gospel. Oh, that is it. Yes. Yeah. That God made him who was without sin to be sin for us that we might be the righteousness of God. Yeah. We don't have to wear the coffee stand. <clears throat> so what went wrong in my wedding? Everything. Mm. Everything went wrong. I had the worst wedding ever, <laughs> but by God's grace, it is a wedding. That's right. And... That starts your marriage, mm -hmm. and we just celebrated 23 years Come on. of a wonderful covenant. But on the day of our wedding, at about 2 o'clock in the morning, we just bought a house, and Gretchen showed up, and she said, I don't feel good, and she began to get sick for the next six hours. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and long story short, she was very, very, very ill the day that we got married. They gave her a shot of Finnegan to keep her from puking, and it knocked her unconscious. <laughs> We got married. We had to postpone it about 45 minutes. Um, she almost <laughs> was wheeled down the aisle in a wheelchair because she couldn't walk. Oh but gosh. both her parents walked her down the aisle, mm. which makes for good pictures. It's kind yeah. of a cool thing. But <laughs> it was just so that they could hold her up. Uh, we cut out all the stuff. It was just like, do you? Yep. You? Yep. <laughs> all right. Peace. And uh, yeah, it was terrible. But look at all of our marriages now. I know. Good but times. I have been to... I have been to some mil like literally million dollar weddings that are just I mean orchestras and ice sculptures and I did a wedding on the um like right at the 18th green mm. at TBC I've done them at Biltmore all the places right and um man what you spend on a wedding has zero impact on if you're going to stay in that covenant That's or not That's right. so true all right, so this chapter is on water to wine, Jesus' first miracle. You know, I don't know that we can actually answer this question, but it would be fun to talk about that. Why is this the first miracle? It's like, I kind of understand feeding 5,000 people or healing a blind man or the paralytic, but turning water into wine at a wedding, it seems a little random to me. So let's just imagine here for a bit, why why do you think this is the first miracle? I don't think you have to imagine. I think because the whole book in Genesis starts with a wedding, and it points to the end when it ends with a wedding at the, the great uh, wedding feast of Jesus the Lamb that comes to get his bride. And so he is going to initiate and inaugurate his public ministry with what Jesus is a begin with the end in mind guy, man. And so I think all of this is pointing what 
we are all heading towards in heaven, mm. which is the marriage supper of the Lamb. Love it. Can you give us a quick synopsis of the miracle in case, I know everyone's already read the chapter, listened to the sermon, but just in case they haven't, just so they have a frame of reference for what we're talking about. Yeah, Jesus shows up to a wedding, which um, first of all, I hope if you're a follower of Jesus, you conduct yourself in such a way that you get invited to the parties because all the Christians that I grew up with were <laughs> facts. They very boldly boycotted all the parties, but Jesus was a party guy, man. He showed up. And um, uh, wedding feast in the first century would last multiple days, and hospitality was uh, a core value. And in an honor-shame culture like in the first century in the Middle East, if you were going to run out, it was like a stain. Speaking of stains, it was like a stain on your character mm -hmm. because you did not have what it takes to provide for your family. So they run out of wine. Um. Interestingly, in The Chosen, they make it seem like Jesus brought a bunch of extra guests and he was the reason why. Mm. I don't well, know, <laughs> but whatever. Uh, the Bible does not specifically say that. Mary comes to Jesus, says they've run out of wine. I love his response. Woman, what does this have to do with me? That is not a verse that you should ever quote <laughs> to your mom or your wife. But Mary's hidden these things in her heart is what the Bible says at his birth. She knows that he is the son of God. And she's thinking maybe he can do something about it. And then, in my opinion, the greatest advice in all the scriptures, she gathers the servants together and says, do whatever he tells you to do. And then he tells them to do some seemingly silly things, like get the six stone jars, um, fill them up with water. These would have been the jars that they've been washing their hands in for the last four days, so they'd be nasty. Go get a ladle, dip it out. <clears throat> take the water, the nasty water, to the 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 guy running the party. They do it, and it is it has become the best wine, not just wine, but the best wine. And then Jesus doesn't even make a big deal about it. Mm. But the, I mean, the implications of this we could spend hours and hours and hours. I think <clears throat> I think he's beginning to shift the mindset. From the old covenant to the new. The old covenant would be get some Clorox wipes and wipe down the outside of the stone containers. And the new covenant is I'm not just going to clean, like you are the dirty water. Mm -hmm. I'm not just going to filter out the bad things from your life. I'm going to transform you into something completely different. Mm -hmm. That's right. That's, so That's what he does. So it says that Mary taps Jesus on the shoulder and when I was reading Anything is Possible, that jumped out at me for some reason differently than it has in the past. Um, I guess it made me question, it made me ask myself, like, am I tapping Jesus on the shoulder? Like she knows the power that he has and she knows where to go to fix the problem that she is facing, even though he hasn't performed a miracle yet. So she knows. And so I guess my question is, why does this matter so much to us today as we read this miracle? You looking at me? I'm looking at you. <laughs> <clears throat> I love your point that I'm wondering, I wonder if I'm tapping Jesus on the shoulder because she comes at it with total belief. Mm -hmm. There's no doubt in her. She's There's zero. There's not a scintilla of doubt. And she says, hey, they need some help. Um. One of the things about this picture that strikes me, and when we were working on this, it struck me then, is this. 
and I couldn't get over it, and I still can't get over it now. You ask the question, why this miracle? Why not feeding? Why not healing? Why not raising? It's almost as if Jesus is sending a signal. He's, he's beginning something that is going to end in him drinking the Father's cup of wrath. Mm-hmm. And he is he's, he's bringing about a paradigm shift, a total upside-down kingdom, which we've talked mm-hmm. about. And he's going to take from us the Father's cup of wrath. And in exchange, he's going to give us the cup of his blood in the new covenant. And I, I think there's something, absolutely. Um, well, there are you, overtones in the... Uh, so so you've, you've got like these two storylines, if you will. I'm talking to one of the greatest authors in the history of our country about storylines. This is great. <laughs> it's true. Dude, do you know how few I know, people... I agree. Less than 0.01% can even make a living off of writing books. Sure. and um, So anyway, so literally. All right, so there is this storyline. What I began to think reading this is what every single person thinks when they go to a wedding. And I don't mean every individual person. I mean every non-married person. They begin to think about their wedding. I think he's thinking about Revelation. Yes. And and the 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 overtone I'm talking about is the danger for the reputation of the father that was throwing the party is that he didn't have what it takes to pay the price for us to have enough wine. Right. And maybe what's going through the mind of Jesus is, am I willing to pay the price for for Mm. my believers? Look, at the end of the Last Supper, he says, next time I drink this, I'll be drinking with you at the great wedding feast. Mm. But what it costs him is what you're talking about to endure the full wrath of God. Mm-hmm. So there's a, there's a like exactly what Charles is saying. There's a cost overtone mm-hmm. that nobody's paying attention to because they're just drinking wine. Yeah. That's right. That's good. We also see it in the, and I can't remember the chapter, but somewhere late in Matthew, Jesus is telling the parable of the wedding feast. Mm-hmm. Maybe late Matthew, Matthew 18, 20, 20, somewhere in there. Um, and he tells the whole parable and it, it go get, bring, the, bring my friends. None of them. They all go different ways. Okay, then go in the street and get good, bad, get everybody. And they come in, the place is packed. And he turns to this one dude and he says, Hey, you got the right clothes. Where are your wedding clothes? And the, guys, and the guy just looks at him like speechless. And he just says, bind him and throw him out. Well, what I didn't understand was that in this day and in this culture, if you invited someone to a wedding and they did not have the proper clothing, you would provide what they needed to honor the bride because mm-hmm. it was all about honoring the bride. So even if they walked in the door, you would say, hey, let me clothe you so that you are, you are presenting honor to the bride. And so that was offered to this guy. Who's, who, who refused it? All he wanted was the party. He had he was not he was not there for the bride, mm. and out somewhere this in this whole thing that Jesus is doing, <clears throat> I, th- I do I do believe he's pointing absolutely right. He is pointing with the end in mind. The end so of the story. So the root of what you're talking about and the root of your question, in my opinion, are the same root. Mm. What that guy in the parable is saying: I don't need what you're providing. I got this. Right. What you're saying is the the reason we don't tap Jesus on the shoulder mm. is because we go, I That's got right. this. That's good. Both of these things are we going to Jesus going, we need help. Mm-hmm. That's so good. 
I've never heard someone talk about wine the way that Charles does in his um, All the Keeper books. It honestly changed wine for me because, <laughs> I mean, it's really beautiful. There's so many gospel undertones to all those books. But can you just talk a little bit about wine and some of the things around it that are just undeniably... <laughs> They just point you to Jesus in As a way. I'm some expert on wine. You are the expert on Look, wine. when Christy and I went to Sonoma, I learned a couple of things. Most of the wine grapes in the continental United States use the same root stock. And I think it comes out of the Mississippi Delta. And they learned this 100 or two years, 200 years ago, and it's resistant to a certain type of blight. But every grape, no matter if it's the most expensive to the least, whatever, they all use this same root stock. And I just look, and then you see them, they literally chop it off and then they graft in, you know, whatever the plant, whatever the plant is, Zinfandel, Cabernet, whatever. And then the thing grows out of the root stock. And I just kept looking at that going, I am so totally grafted in mm. and it's the root that mm. supports me. And even as, you know, when we're, I'm walking around Israel a couple of weeks ago and I'm just like, I am, I am so thankful to the root that, because they were pruned that I might be grafted. I mean, and there's a gratitude there that's a real thing. Secondly though, and I don't know the, how much this is used today, but when they crush the grapes, a lot of it is automated. And I, I, okay, I don't pretend to understand all that. But in some of the the first crushing, they'll do it old style and they'll put it in a big bin and everybody gets in barefooted and they crush the grapes. Well, the re, why do they do it barefooted? Well, if you crush it too much, you crush the seed and it produces a bitterness that is becomes part of the taste of the wine. But somehow our feet don't, crush hard enough and it just crushes the skin and the whatever and you get this so there's so many there were so many things in that trip that stuck out to me none more so than the garden tomb which we visit when they unearthed it they found a ginormous crushing pool mm -hmm. where they would have brought the grapes or the from the garden of the whoever the rich person was that owned it and they would have put them in there and all of them would have just walked around barefoot. And then you see this groove that's cut and the wine rolls out or flows out and they catch it. So we go from the Garden of Gethsemane where the olives are crushed and the oil flows to the garden tomb where the grapes are crushed and it's oil to wine. And I'm like, the Lord doesn't waste anything. There's nothing wasted in scripture. That's about all I know about wine. I also know about wine that um, the best grapes are usually put in the most stressful situations. That's why Sonoma, Napa, it's it's the hills, especially um, the the extreme temperature change every day. Mm. That is what to to the to the root feels like stress. To the vine feels like stress. But what is produced in the fruit is what we value so much, yeah, and that'll true. preach. I will preach. Can I tell oh, one story? Yeah, brag on my wife. We're out there. We're doing this tasting at Deerfield Ranch, and and Rex, who is this? He's I think he's he's produced fifty one seasons now. Of he's he's crazy smart, and but he's bringing out these different wines for us to taste. And I don't I pretend to have a palate. I'm like my response to most wines. Mm, that's yummy. <laughs> right. Christy, on the other hand, can actually taste different flavors. So he brings out this Syrah from like nineteen or twenty or something. 2019, 2020. And I taste it and I'm like, Rex, that that that's yummy. I really like that. Thank you. And Christy's, you know, doing her little thing and she says, I don't 
I, I don't know, but I taste smoke. And he said, wow, that's really good. And in this year, whatever the year was, 18, 19, 20, Sonoma was covered up in fires mm-hmm. and the smoke settled in the valley for days and weeks. The grapes absorbed it. Wow. So my wife is tasting that. Um, but I still haven't tasted it yet, but it was amazing how the grape keeps the score mm. and a record of what it endured. Yeah. When you were talking about the root is all the same, whether it's the most expensive grape or the cheapest or anything in between, it kind of reminded me of in the prologue, I think it is, when you talked about your moment with the Nigerian pastor mm-hmm. and the two of you together you, I'm not saying this about you, but you say a redneck from Dillon, South Carolina and this pastor from Nigeria, and you're both experiencing the tomb together. And that's what it reminds me of. Like you have the same root. You come from totally different backgrounds. You operate in two totally different world spheres, yet you have this common ground that made you immediate brothers. Yeah, this is what he said. He brought in this big Nigerian flag and said, what do you do? And I was like, I'm a pastor. He's like, me too. We are brothers. We have the same father. We have the same Lord. And he wraps this Nigerian. Hey, dude, he was like nine feet tall. And uh, and he wraps his Nigerian flag around me. And we pray. We pray for Jacksonville. We prayed for the U.S. We prayed for our church. We prayed for his church. We prayed for Nigeria. And we prayed for all the believers in the world that we would be one as he is one. Wow. Mm. In the tomb. The other thing that's crazy about that day, because again, we were just there, in case we hadn't pointed that out. (laughs) Every time I've been there, there are hundreds of people. And that day, the first day I ever go to the tomb, it was me, Henry, Ben Williams, Ryan Britt. And for about an hour and a half, nobody else. Mm. And even the guide was like, uh, what it, you know. And and I was like, hey, man. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the Lord so has good. blessed us all. He's just been especially good to me. And so I was sitting in the empty tomb for like 30 minutes wow. when he comes walking in. Yeah, it's so good. Um, our field trip out of the last podcast was to Israel. I'm kind of thinking like a Napa trip <laughs> to really learn about all of the gospel implications. Um, okay. So Mary looks at the servants. She says, do whatever he tells you to do. This phrase has been a big part of our church, your preaching, um, your walk with the Lord. Can you just tell us, Maybe about the first time you read that and just what that what that part of scripture has meant. <clears throat> the first time I really thought about it, I was at a Fellowship Adventure event with my friend Jeff Moore. Um, I think it was a father-son trip, and they had and Jeff had an intern, this kid's like 19 or 20 years old, and listens to the podcast and follows me and all that kind of stuff. And he's like on the front end of ministry. And he says to me, Can you give me some advice? And John 2, 5 was the first mm. verse to pop in my head. Cool. I was like, the best thing I can tell you to do is do whatever he tells you to do. <clears throat> and then in the, in the season that we're in in this church right now, in John 10, 10, um, John 10 is all about Jesus letting us know he is the good shepherd. And multiple times it says that my sheep know my voice. And in that context, he says, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy but I have come that you may have life and have it abundantly, which means this, that the good shepherd speaks to his sheep in whatever direction he calls you toward. He is only and always calling you towards abundant life, Mm -hmm. even if it doesn't make sense right now. So let's put these two events together, John 2 and John 10 together. When Jesus tells these servants what to do, none of it makes sense. 
go get the stone jars. Why? What does that have to do with anything? Fill them up with water. Why? What does that have to do with anything? Dip some out. What are you talking about? Mm -hmm. Then he even instructs them to do something that on the surface seems very offensive. Dip some out and take it to the master of ceremonies. Bro, you trying to get me in trouble? Mm -hmm. So then my question is, and little do they know that a miracle that we're still talking about 2,000 years later hangs on the other side of about four or five steps of obedience. And so one of the reasons, two of the reasons I wanted to start out with this chapter is, one, it was a sign, and signs point to something bigger than themselves. And secondly, maybe the miracle that you're hoping and looking for is on the other side of about five steps of obedience. Mm -hmm. And of course, those steps of obedience don't make sense. But if you know he is the good shepherd and he loves his sheep and he's willing to lay down his life for his sheep, and the enemy only wants to steal, kill, and destroy, then whatever this world tells you to do is only going to lead to that. Mm. It's going to take from you. It's going to kill from you. It's going to destroy you. And so when's the last time you did something that didn't make any sense in the natural, but the reason you had to do it is because that's what he told you to Mm do. Like share your faith or be bold about your faith or give generously or go on a mission trip or whatever the thing is. And if you have a hard time thinking of the last time God asked you to take a bold step of faith, then it may be that you're not paying attention to your good shepherd. That leads right into my next question about obedience. Um, the servants can't see the end, yet they obey. I think it's interesting that there are multiple servants in this formula. So, okay, first question is, do other people's obedience... Could that help or hinder our next step of obedience? Well, it can sure encourage us. One of the things we've talked about just in conversations in the past is not doing what Jesus told you to do, but do what he is telling you to do. Mm. Because there can be a difference. He may have said, follow me here. And then at some other time he says, follow me there. But if you're still stuck in here and not going to the then you're not listening and tuned in. And I'm, look, I'm as guilty, but I think we see this in our churches sometimes. Churches experience a move of God and they absolutely walked in obedience and they did what he told them to do. And then for some reason, they just got stuck and stayed there. And they're, for whatever faith they had that they walked in in the beginning, maybe they didn't later. And I've, one of my prayers for us, just as children of God, is that we continue to listen and stay tuned into the Holy Spirit enough that we can hear him when he wants us to give us a course direction or not just to, because it can be safe just to do what you know he told you to do. Totally. It can be totally safe and not require a whole lot of faith. It, it required faith to get there. Sometimes it doesn't require faith to stay there. Mm. It certainly requires faith to continue listening and go, oh, okay, now he's calling me someplace else. Mm, that's good. Yeah, if Abraham did what God told him to do, he would have sacrificed his son Isaac. Right. You got to stay in step. <clears throat> we studied Philippians in our last series, and Paul tells us, hey, I'm going to forget what is behind and strain towards what is ahead. And so, which means that you continuously have to stay tuned in to the voice of the good shepherd mm. and do whatever he tells you to do. So what does a life of obedience look like? I'm still trying to figure that out. <clears throat> I think people get too 
hung up on like what is God's will for my life. I know what God's will for your life is. It is the Great Commission. He's already commissioned all of us. And so um I I I think it is a lot of a lot of preachers have used this example of a sailboat at the dock is pretty useless. And you got to just get out in the water, open up the sails, and go where the wind blows. Mm. I think as you are on the go, God will continuously reveal what he wants for you and where that is. As you are obeying his general commands that are true for all of us, like be about the Great Commission, fight against sin that is trying to kill you, do the things that stir your affections for him, share the good news of the gospel in whatever area he has put you in. And as you are faithful with that general revelation to us all, then maybe you would be trustworthy for him to give you specific marching mm. orders into a specific place. Mm. We just, we're just we walking through this. Christy and I are walking through this currently with our youngest son, Reeves. And he's got two choices in front of him. And we've been praying about him for months. And it's kind of like this past week, it's kind of, it has come to a point where he has to absolutely make a decision. And to his credit, he's really wrestled with the Lord. He's really sought him in prayer. He's really gotten quiet. He's been in the word. He's been seeking counsel. He's been talking to his mom and his dad. And he's, he really just does want to hear the Lord. And I, I want to, I want to help give guidance as his dad, but I don't have a strong feeling one way or the other. I don't know. I don't know what the Lord, I mean, they're both good options. I don't, so we finally just, I mean, after, you know, seeking the Lord and seeking the Lord, I said, pal, here's, I don't have a strong conviction one way or the other. Here's what I do know. You've sought him. These are your options. Even if you make a mistake, the Lord can handle your mistakes Mm -hmm. He can reroute us. It's not the end of the world. Now, I'm not telling you to walk in willful disobedience, but sometimes we just don't know. Mm. And okay, raise the sail up. And and then if you need a course correction, the Lord will tap us, you know, and Mm. sometimes we don't know. I'm living proof of that. Mm. Yeah, I would love to know if you all have an example from either your ministry or your life where you felt the Lord leading you to something and you couldn't really see why or what it was. And now on the other side, you look back and think, wow, that was such a critical point in my journey of obedience. Every, um, every step along the, the way in, my, in the ministry that I've been a part of has been that way. Like he called me into ministry. I was in college. I go to the seminary. I don't feel like it's the right one, but he wouldn't let me leave. Um, and the reason it wasn't the right one is because it's a bunch of libs, it's a bunch of heretics, mm-hmm. and I am trying to evangelize my professors and share the good news of the gospel with them. And straight up told my New Testament professor, I think when I get to heaven, you're not going to be there. And she's like, <laughs> "How could you say that?" I was like, "Sounds like you don't believe in the bodily resurrection." And Romans ten nine says it is essential. So went through that experience, <laughs> get hired, go to. You sound get, like a fun student. Oh have. man! <laughs> Imagine you know me pretty well. Back it up 25 years, take 25 <laughs> years of maturity <laughs> off. So then then I meet Bill Ross, man. This, you know, he hired me out of seminary. And for about <clears throat> a year, it's just, I was like, this is the promised land. I was right outside of Roanoke, met Gretchen there. We get married. I was like, this is it. I'm going to stay here and disciple students for the rest of my life. And then he, he leaves and goes to Athens, Georgia, across the street from UGA. And I was like... What are you doing? <clears throat> he invites us to go. We go. 
thinking this is going to be sweet. This is going to be a continuation of what we've been experiencing there. And then <clears throat> that church that we were at was Laodicea, man. Had plenty of money. The key to understanding the church at Laodicea is this is where Jesus knocks on the door. Who knocks on the door? People that are outside. Mm. He wasn't in there. Mm. Right. Wow. And, right. Mm. And I thought, holy moly, what am I doing? I was this close to leaving ministry. Mm, wow. I mean, <clears throat> you know, Elijah's told to go lay down by the brook during the drought, and then one day it says, and the brook dried up. Mm -hmm. Sometimes even when you tr are trying to be obedient to God, the brook just dries up. Mm -hmm. So I almost left, and Gretchen was like, well, an angel shows up to Elijah and brings him cake and then tells him to take a nap. So that's what you need. You need three things to know the will of God, an angel, some cake, and a nap. <clears throat> and Gretchen so, Martin. Gretchen Martin. So we, go on, so I, we come to Jacksonville, um, interviewed at a bunch of different places, and went to Beach United. I'd never been inside a Methodist church and uh, had no idea that what God had in store was the church of 1122. And I can honestly say none of those steps were a means to an end for me, sure. man. I mean, I was your youth pastor. Mm -hmm. When I was when I was your youth pastor, I thought, this is it. I have arrived. This is what I'm going to do for the rest of my life. I'm just going to make disciples of teenagers here in Jack's Beach. Right. But, but the Lord said, no. I, one of the hardest things for me to give up was student ministry. Mm -hmm. I don't know if I've shared this with you guys, but man, for like a year... I couldn't get past this prayer, God, I surrender. Like I'd be trying to pray for things and people, and my prayer was just, Lord, I surrender. <clears throat> and then I remember thinking, I don't even know what I'm surrendering. Mm -hmm. And I was in a business meeting at Beach about, I don't even know what it was about. And the Lord just laid it on me. I want you to surrender student ministry. And I was like, no, mm -hmm. that's not, you don't, that's no, listen. I didn't mean that. <laughs> I meant like lust or mm -hmm. anger or how about, mm -hmm. you know, control. And dude, I mean, I broke down in this ugly cry. Like like I couldn't hold it together. I'm not a good crier to begin with. <laughs> and I was so embarrassed that I went and hit. We were in this like fellowship hall thing and they had these like curtains on a stage. And I went and hid between the curtains. And Ryan Stone came over and prayed for me. And what God was doing in that moment was birthing this. Wow. And I didn't know it at all. Yeah, that's so good. Yeah. You it, you kind of let student ministry go a little slowly, though, because even when you weren't with student ministry, you were still coming on the mission trips. I did it, man, yeah. <laughs> well, part of what I was trying to do is just raise up. Well, listen, man. When Jesus in John 10 talks about, about being a good shepherd, the Greek word for shepherd and pastor are the same thing. So you don't just like, I was invested in all you kids. Mm -hmm. And I wasn't just going to hand that over to somebody <laughs> that I didn't love and trust and sure. believe was called. <clears throat> and Stone was like 11 years old. Well, was he, not? he was like 20. <laughs> he was young. I mean, I, he's 10 years younger than me. So whatever. He was probably like 25, right? And, and, um, and I knew he was the guy. I mean, he's incredible. What a great, great pastor. Yeah. But I just wanted to take care of people in that transition. Yeah. I told you this right before we started recording this episode, but it's it, I love to see how God brings things full circle. And our students had their biggest weekend, one of the biggest weekends they have of the year called One Weekend. And the theme of it is do whatever he tells you to do. So I love it. even though you're removed from student ministry, you know, 
God is still using you in student ministry. Like it's just, it's just cool to see that he just had bigger, your influence would just grow, but it would still be under your influence. <clears throat> and when, when Charles was talking about redirection, man, think about, all right. So like God has a plan for Jonah, makes it abundantly clear, and Jonah rejects it, and God still goes and gets him yeah. and takes him where he's supposed to go. Yeah. So you can save yourself a whole lot of pain if you'll just lay it, lay it before the Lord. Think about how they made decisions in the New Testament. You would think replacing an apostle would be a big decision. I mean, think about how many interviews you had to go through to get a job here. Mm. All right, <clears throat> so the remaining 11 apostles... They do their due diligence and they narrow it down to two dudes. And the final decision, they cast lots. <laughs> All I could, the only thing you can infer from that is that they had prayed this thing up to the point where they were like, Lord, this guy or this guy are both qualified. Maybe this is like Reeves' decision. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't think one of his options is like selling drugs to Afghani right. kids. You know, right. right. It's like, Two things that God could be glorified in, and I think you just pray, guess, and go, mm-hmm. and then keep praying, keep guessing, and keep going. That's good. Yeah, and that you're 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 continuously surrendered to what He tells you to do. Yeah. What about you, Charles? Um, Christy and I married in '93. She put me through grad school. Uh, <laughs> got pregnant with Charlie in '97. Moved home. My brother-in-law, God bless him, Tommy, had mercy on me and gave me a job in the insurance business, and I'm still grateful to him. He he gave me a job, let, let me take care of my family. Insurance was not my heart's passion, and he knew that. Um, after about two and a half years, uh, sort of a perfect storm in my life, the company we, we represented came and offered me a you know, a beautiful job and all. It was great. I mean, it, it, my dad and my grandfather grew up on either sides of the Depression. They knew what it was like to have two nickels. You know, They never would have deliberated. They just said, yes, I'll take the job. I'll start Monday. But they had... But my mom and my dad had raised me not to ask, how do I make the most amount of money? My, the question on my heart was, Lord, where do you want me to follow you? Mm. Like, what, 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 did you what did you put into me that, that, I can, that is the gift I can express for you? Like, what, do, what do you and I do together? And they offered me this job and Christy and I wrestled all weekend. I didn't want it, but I also knew I couldn't do it without Christy's, you know, walking with me. And she really gave me permission and a beautiful thing that happened Sunday afternoon. She just, she just gave me permission. I said, no, thank you to the job. And then we like, I, by this time I'd written a manuscript and Christy thought it was pretty good. And so I start sending, I sent out over a hundred queries. I quit counting at 86 rejections. Mm. 14 months later, uh, she lays number 86 on my keyboard. I have bills I cannot pay. I look like a total fool. And I have been fasting and praying. Like, and I'm not trying to put this on me. Look at, the, look at all that I did. Boots, I'm, not, I'm, I'm not saying that, but God in his mercy, somehow, some way, just put us with the right person who got me an agent and got me a publishing contract with one of the companies that had rejected me and I don't know. I said this to Christy the other day. I said, I think the Lord gives you the faith that you need when you need it. Because when I look back on what we've done, what he's done in us and to us and through us to get us here, what we've, in, what we've encountered, I wonder where we got the faith for that sometimes because it seemed like a lot at the time. 
All I know is I was trying to, I was walking a fine line between being this rebellious artist, thumbing my nose at the business world, which was not my heart, but that was the perception in some ways. And me really trying to figure out, Lord, I, I really do love telling stories. And I think you, I think you delight when I tell them. Mm. How, like, how can we, and it just didn't happen overnight. You know, so they say you're like 10 years from an overnight success. I'm 25 <laughs> years into a writing career and I still don't feel like I'm, you know what I mean? So it's a, this faith thing is we walk by faith and not by sight. It is, it's a, it's a, it's a gut thing. It's not an intellectual decision. Mm. It's a, it's, it's down like where your butterflies are. That's where the decision is made mm. to follow him, even when it doesn't make sense. And there's a, we just talked about this the other day. There's a scripture, I don't know, Romans four or something. They all run together, but it says, Abraham grew in his faith as he gave glory to God. Mm. I thought, huh, he grew in his faith as he, so I just, I want to be, regardless of our circumstances, I want us to be in a place where we are giving him glory because he will then grow our faith. He's done it. I mean, I'm, and I, that those 86 rejections hurt. I have had rejections since then, like mm-hmm. entire manuscripts that hurt a lot more than the eight. I hit the New York Times list in 08, pinnacle of high water mark of my career up until that point. I come home from book tour in Italy. They took us to Milan, uh, Paris. They took us to Milan, Rome, Florence. I got to sit there and stare at the statue of David on somebody else's dime. It was crazy. <laughs> I come home, turn in a manuscript. My, my editor says no. Wow. And I'm like, okay, well, you want me to rewrite? No, I don't want any of it. They canceled my contract, everything. Wow. So the Lord knows what he's doing far better than I do. You know, you, you ask about our obedience impact on other people's lives. <clears throat> Simultaneously, you can't thwart the plans of God, mm-hmm. but you sure can be blessed by other people's obedience. I mean... If Charles doesn't do all that, I don't get to write if the tomb is empty or anything is possible. And what I think about is, think about all the people at the wedding in Cana, and they have no idea. (laughs) They just got really great wine. They just got hooked up. You think about this church. I mean, we say it all the time. What we're doing is not new. It's just our turn. And we stand on the shoulders of faithful men and women that we don't even, I know a few of their names. But I don't know a bunch of their names. They started a little church called Rising Tide Church down at the beach over in a bakery, and they began to pray for revival in Jacksonville. I believe we are harvesting Mm -hmm. the fruit of their prayers from the 1930s. That's right. Yeah, it challenges me to be praying for future generations like that. You know, if I pray for our church right now, because I'm a part of it, but I should be praying for the next round of people running this place and the next round of generation of people getting saved. So it's good. Your stories or your experiences, I hope people can see that some of them were confusing. Some of the steps were confusing and didn't make sense. And you are two people who obviously you still have moments and experiences that are hard, but there's no doubt you're sitting in exactly what God's called you to do. And Um, there's just so much to be gleaned and learned from that. So I I appreciate you sharing that. So back to weddings. 
this first miracle, it's at a wedding. The Bible begins and ends with the wedding as you talked about. So obviously weddings are important. And um, how does that relate to our our weddings and marriages um, and the importance of them? Well, first of all, culturally right now, our current culture has desecrated <clears throat> what God has made holy. Uh, I mean, with everything from like 1973, no-fault divorce to the redefinition of marriage today to, mm-hmm. I mean, so we're, we're talking about completely different things. Sure. And yet still, the most beautiful depiction of our relationship with the Lord is found in the picture of a husband and wife making mm-hmm. a covenant. That all the way back to like Abraham, God began to cut a covenant with his people, and that's what it was called. It was you cut a covenant. And that you would take a you would take an animal, you would sacrifice it, and then you would make whatever deal you're gonna make, and then you would walk through the middle of the sacrifice. The idea being if I don't hold up to my end of the bargain here, may what we've done to this lamb happen to me. That was mm-hmm. the picture of it. And so 23 years ago, when I stood at an altar with Gretchen, we make a covenant, not a contract. The problem <clears throat> that, that a lot of our Western society has is they see marriage as a contract, and it's not a contract. Can you imagine going to a wedding instead of a covenant or vows? They didn't make vows, but they made a contract. Mm. I mean, we talk about it in the book. Can you imagine if you're there and it's like, well, for better or for worse, <laughs> you're like, nope, not worse. <laughs> In fact, let's talk about better here. And the guy's like, all right, here's a couple of conditions that I have, right. okay? Um, you can only gain this much weight. You have to sleep with me this amount of times. And, you know, right. dinner five times a week. <laughs> and then she's like, okay, I see your dinner, and I'm going to raise you. I need this many spa treatments, this many girls' trips, and here's my Zillow account. This is the house I want. Okay. Everybody there would think, oh, my, where's my toaster? I'm taking that. It's not worth the investment, right? <clears throat> so there's still the thumbprints of God on every image bearer that knows when two people treat each other contractually in a marriage is gross. Mm. And when, when you see people love one another like a covenant, it's beautiful. Mm. That, that's, some of, like, that's some of the dust of eternity on mm. us. Yeah, that's good. Anything you'd add? I had this um, I had this reaction in Israel. We were just bumped into a conversation and a couple talking about a guy marrying a guy, and just the whole conversation around that whole thing. And and um, I think maybe there's a part of Charles that, that wants to get angry and straighten and then it, it straighten out. But in that moment, the Lord did a beautiful thing, and he and he gave me his some like a deposit of his mercy or compassion or just something. And it's not I don't I'm not the best at that, but for some reason in that moment he did it. And my re, my response to them in my heart was I, I wish I could take them. I wish I could just grab them by the arm and just walk them just arm in arm back up to the cross and just say, Hey, okay. I'm not trying to straighten you out and, and I'm not trying to make you something. I I just want to show you what it cost Mm -hmm. for you to be given the right to become a child of God. Mm -hmm. And, and, 
I just wish I could walk them back to the cross and say, it cost, it cost this for you. And there's something, I think if, if, if I, we, because the, the argument around this whole thing right now is so angry and so, so bitter. And so it's just, there's no way that no one's going to win that argument ever. Jesus will, but we're not. And I just, if there's a part of my heart in that moment that I, I wish I could have literally taken him back to the cross and say, look, I, I, I just want to, sh- I'm not trying to change your behavior. I just want to show you what it costs you or cost him to give you the right to become a child of God and to walk back to the father. And I, I don't know, maybe the Lord will show me how to, how to be his, his hands and feet, you know, Jesus with skin or whatever in the future. But it was a kind of, it was a sweet thing that he did. I didn't get wrapped up in the bitterness. I got, I got a picture of, man, I just, I wish they could see Jesus, because this this argument would not be there'd be no more argument. Mm-hmm. Yeah, any any time I'm pastoring somebody, and 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 we're talking about particularly some kind of thing in their life that I think is sin, because the my understanding of the Bible says it's sin, but the person I'm talking to is trying to justify the thing. Mm. I like to talk about lordship. If Jesus just rolled up in your bedroom tonight and said. Don't do this. Would you? Would you stop, or at least want to? Right? Try right, to. Right. If not, by definition, he's not your lord. You are okay. And then another thought. I haven't unpacked this fully, but it's been rattling around in my head a lot in the last like six months. <clears throat> right and wrong will never sustain you as a follower of Jesus. Mm. Just trying to do the right thing instead of doing the wrong thing. I mean, it's where Paul is like, what is wrong with me? I, I, don't, I wanted it was right, and I can't. Okay. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> but when the good shepherd talks to us, he, whatever he says to do leads to life. So we got to quit thinking about sin as right and wrong. I think we have to think about sin and obedience as life or death. And whenever we obey the good shepherd, it always produces life. And whenever we disobey Jesus, regardless of what our culture tells us, there is a death that is produced. Ultimately, there's a fiery death forever and ever if you reject him. But in every little step and decision that you make. So marriage is a perfect example, okay? So the Bible says that marriage, that, that sex is for married people, not going to be married, not used to be married, not married in my heart. There's no such thing. Okay. And if you think about right or wrong, it won't sustain you, man. But if you just decide, all right, I'm going to wait, not because I want to, I'm going to wait just because you say that, I, that, that it is the way you designed it. You begin to give birth to things like value and respect and honor. The Bible says that love is patient. It's the very first definition of love. Mm. You cannot simultaneously be impatient and love somebody, okay? But if you begin to take what is not yours, you begin to create some, there's some things that begin to die. Mm. Intimacy dies. Faithfulness, trustworthiness begins to die. And then you begin to carry that stench of death into your bedroom as married people and wonder why there's a problem. Do you see how that's totally different yeah. than 
well, we tried to do the right thing and not do the wrong thing. Yeah, no, 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 no. That God would love you enough to say every time you take steps of obedience, every time you do life the way I see do life, it gives birth to life. It's mm, good. And I'm drawn more to life than I am to right. Like I want life that, let me go towards life. Correct. Right and wrong. Uh, yeah, I mean, I want to be right, but. Everyone's wrong sometimes, but sure. life, death, like, let me always pursue life. So you, you mentioned, and you talk about it in your book, we are the dirty water. And when I was reading that, it hit me for the first time that the water has no control over where it goes. The hands are put in it. It becomes dirty. It's just born. It, it is that way. The servants are putting it in the cup. It's being transported. It has no control over where it's going. It doesn't have control over getting chosen from all the other jars to be put in those cups to be turned to wine. And I just had this overwhelming picture of my salvation and that I had nothing to do with being chosen. And when we were in Israel, I had that same overwhelming feeling at the Western Wall. And I honestly didn't cry harder any other time during the trip than in front of the Western Wall, which is funny because I wasn't really expecting that. But it's this place and the men and women have to be separated because the women can't pray to the wall on, on the men's side, which already that had me a little bit riled up. And I'm just sitting there and I'm just watching these women bow to this wall because they think it's the closest spot to the Ark of the Covenant, right? That's the premise of the Western Wall. And you say this on like compassion weekends that the only difference between us and these kids who are born into these impoverished villages is where we were born. Mm -hmm. And I looked at these women and thought the only difference between me and them is where we were born. I had nothing to do with it. I had nothing to do with being able to worship freely in a country where I can choose how I worship. Like God did all of that. And I was talking to Christy, Charles' wife, that night, and I couldn't really articulate how I was feeling. I was just very overwhelmed. And she had this beautiful picture that she gave me. She said, it, it's like this intersection of grief and gratitude, grief for those women that they don't know that there's actually freedom and it's not in the wall and gratitude that thank you, God, for choosing me. And so then when I was reading the book, after having that experience, and I read about the dirty water. I'm like, this is it too. Like the water didn't choose. It just was a part of it. And um, and I don't know. I don't really have a question attached to that other than that like new picture of the dirty water. <clears throat> it's a perfect picture because... So when I lead a trip to Israel, when we get to the Western Wall, you see the most religious people on the planet. Uh working to attain a righteousness. And I invite everybody to read Romans 9 and 10, yes. which is Thanks about God's really sovereign <laughs> election. right? And again, man, Jesus doesn't tell the servants to, to, cleanse, the ex, to cleanse the pots. Mm. Um, he also doesn't tell them to just strain out all the dirty things from the water to purify it. And the thing, when I say I can't get over the gospel, here's what I'm thinking about. At the end of Romans 9, and, and <clears throat> when this, this picture was clarified for me at the Western Wall, watching these people praying to the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and reading Torah and 
add on to that about 100 million man-made traditions. Paul, when he talks about God's sovereign election of your salvation, when he gets to the end of 9, he says, What then shall we say? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it? That is a righteousness that is by faith, but that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not receive in reaching the law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, Mm. but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. Mm. So let me put that in the Joby translation. So you mean to tell me these folks had all the advantage. They had the law, the prophets. They live in the Holy Land. They are at the place where the lamb was slain for the covering of the sin every year on the Day of Atonement. They grew up in that place. They don't even have jobs. They just get up every day and go and open up Torah Mm -hmm. and bow and bob and pray. And this redneck from Dillon, South Carolina, who has done... Listen, man. H.P. Charles said it. You know the worst sinner I know? Me. Yeah. Because I only know about your external sins. I know 100% of mine. Mm. And you mean to tell me, me, this nobody from nowhere, received a righteousness that he did not deserve, but these people that are trying to earn it every single day have not received it? Right. And Paul goes, bingo. Why? Because they didn't receive it by faith, but as if their righteousness was based on works. Yeah, you are the dirty water that by God's grace he decided to transform into wine. It's not just dirty water like stagnant, been sitting out a couple days. People have been washing their hands. And it's not a sterile culture. I mean, maybe a couple of days worth of washing their hands. And then it's the best wine in that, becomes the best wine in the history of wine. And it's, it's, it becomes different in nature. Something in the DNA right. of the water mm. was transformed. It doesn't have the scent of the residue of dirty water. Now it's the, we're 2,000 years later, we're still talking about the best wine in the history of right. wine. That's right. So speaking of wine, you close the chapter with communion, which is a little unique. I've never read a book that has ever closed a chapter by taking communion. So uh, what led you to, to close the chapter in communion? I don't think you can rightly understand why Jesus would start his public ministry at a wedding if you don't understand that we are all called to the great wedding feast mm-hmm. one day and that that communion is what it costs Jesus. So for, man, Jesus has got to know that for like at least 1,500 years, but even longer than that, we don't just get to walk around with the gospel in our pocket. You know, Mm -hmm. and so the Lord institutes Holy Communion so that we would remember the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus. Mm -hmm. That, like Charles just said, that He exchanges the cup of wrath for the cup of grace. And this, and this is why I think wine plays such a big deal throughout the redemptive story, as recorded in the Scriptures. That He holds up that cup and He says, "It's wine," and He says, "This is My blood." Mm And as often as you drink of it, you do so in remembrance of me. And when he says that, he's not saying just remember that I died on the cross for you 2,000 years ago. 
it's very similar since we've been talking about weddings. It's very similar to when you celebrate an anniversary. You're not just remembering, hey, don't you remember? You said <laughs> I do, February 26, 2000. Right. But that I do is still just as relevant today as it was then. Just like the gospel is just as relevant today as it was whenever that moment is that you surrendered your life to Christ. Mm-hmm. And celebrating the Lord's table is this constant reminder every time we do it that we are celebrating the broken body of Jesus and we're celebrating the grace poured out for us and that we have been invited in at, to the table with him. That's good. Anything you Somewhere have? Paul says, I can't, you'll know. Paul says, whenever we do this, we proclaim we proclaim his death until he returns. And I used to wonder, like, why does Paul say we proclaim his death? Why not his resurrection? But then as I backed into it, it's the death that made the atonement. It's the death that satisfied the wrath of God. It's the death that made the payment. It was the, it's the death that is the propitiation. It's the death that cleanses us. So in, in, in communion, in receiving the blood of Christ, we're remembering what was paid on our behalf that we couldn't pay in 10,000 lifetimes. We're also brought face-to-face with our need for the blood in the first place. Because the only thing we bring to the equation is the sin that causes us to need the blood. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the reason for the resurrection is because the, the wages of sin is death. Jesus has no sin, so death can't hold him. It's mm. good. So I want to end with this question. You attached to the title of the chapter is a question, and it's water to wine. And then the question is, do you believe enough to obey? So why did you choose that title? It's back to 2 5. When <clears throat> when Mary says, do whatever he tells you to do. Because it takes a faith to obey, mm. especially when he calls you to do things that don't necessarily make sense in the moment. Mm. And so I and again, if we can get our obedience away from just our, you know, just kind of white knuckled, I'm gonna do the right thing because this is what I was taught. And root it deeply in, do I trust God? Mm. Do I trust that he's good? Do I trust that he's for me? Do I trust when he died on the cross that counted for me? Do I trust whenever I hear his voice, he's only calling me towards abundant life? Mm. That's different than I'm going to I'm going to quit just trying to manage my sin mm-hmm. and be a better person. Yeah, that's good. Well, that's all we have for today. So Pastor Joby, will you close us in prayer? I'd love to. our good and gracious heavenly father god you are good and you are so gracious and lord we thank you for your blood spilt your blood poured out and because of the cup of the new covenant because of the cup of grace then we can know you lord i pray that by the power of the holy spirit you would remind us once again that you are good and everything that you call us to do is because you are good and worthy of the glory that you deserve. Mm. God, when we get scared, when we look at our own circumstances, when we look to our own intellect and think, well, this doesn't make any sense, would you give us the gift of faith to do whatever it is that you've called us to do? We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you for listening to the podcast. <laughs> the end. You nailed it.